that would absolve their allegiance to the British crown. You all know the historical moment I'm talking about, right? This committee of five, as it was called, consisted of Roger Sherman of Connecticut, Robert Livingston of New York, John Adams of Massachusetts, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, and Thomas Jefferson of Virginia. Now, they selected the young Thomas Jefferson to write the first draft under the advisement of the rest of the committee, and then it would be revised and approved and sent to the representatives, and this would become the Declaration of Independence. Right? Now, in Thomas Jefferson's original draft, he proposed these words, and look at the, you'll see the original draft this is a manuscript that is the actual draft that you can see all the lines crossed off and such. This is what he originally wrote. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable that all men are created equal and independent, that from that equal creation, they derive rights inherent and inalienable, among which are the preservation of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It sounds a little different from what you remember from history class, doesn't it? Jefferson's draft leaned heavily on a theistic worldview, borrowing biblical language like sacred and created, and so this draft, it was sent to Benjamin Franklin for some edits. And Ben Franklin, who grew up as a devout Puritan and later in life kind of was heavily influenced by the Enlightenment, he still says he believed in God, but he elevated human reason and human knowledge as paramount. He was very thoroughly an Enlightenment person. And so he had moved towards a worldview that kind of sets God aside and trusts in human moral capacity. So Ben Franklin made a few edits to Jefferson's draft. Most notably, he removed the words sacred and undeniable and replaced them with the word self-evident. So this is what the text now says. It says, we hold these truths to be not sacred and undeniable, but self-evident. Now, this small change might not seem like much, but it reveals something about the worldview of Ben Franklin, but the worldview that was things shifting and changing after the Enlightenment at this time. Because what Ben Franklin claims by just changing this one word is he says, human rights are self-evident. They're obvious to any reasonable person. Any observant human being can, 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 can see that human rights make sense naturally. You don't need God to tell you that humans have rights, Ben Franklin says. Now, the Declaration still speaks of being endowed by our Creator with unalienable rights. And so, the, the, the worldview isn't, sort of theistic worldview isn't totally eliminated. But what I want you to see is there's a tension in this moment in history, in our culture, in the roots of who we are as a society, of removing God from the equation and elevating humanity as the supreme decider of truth and morality. See, this is a story across human history, as a matter of fact. Because ever since the Garden of Eden, we've been tempted to make ourselves the arbiters of right and wrong. We get to decide. We've tended to displace God as God and instead substitute ourselves as God's indeterminers of our own destiny. And this temptation can sometimes be really obvious. It can be a, an obvious rejection of God. I don't need him anymore. Sometimes it can be really subtle, and it can even sound moral and pious. See, there's some not-so-subtle shifts happening in Christianity in our day. One example of this is, is the culture of consumption that has infected the church in America. 
I've talked about this once before. I kind of like to call it life hack Christianity. Okay, it's the kind of discipleship or the way of doing a Christian faith that is about providing shortcuts or simple steps towards being the best Christian that you can be. And it kind of packages it up really nice so that it feels good. But there's a, a darker side to that. It creates an idol of self. And this is really the spirit of our age. It's the idol of self. It's the elevation of what we desire, what we feel entitled to, what we get to decide. And it not only entices us to view ourselves as consumers, but what it does, it diminishes the authority of God and places us as judge over what is true. Now, it can not only lead to his, like abandoning the historic truths of Christianity, but also living in ways that are contrary to God's good design and purpose. So what I want us to see today, friends, is that the church in every age faces the threat of drifting into compromise or idolatry or missing the point. And our age is no different. And this is why we're going to study the book of Jude. Some scholars say that the book of Jude is the most neglected book of the Bible. We don't know what to do with it. And it doesn't even have chapters. What do you mean Jude 2? You know, I mean, people don't know what to do with the book of Jude. See, what I want to do is walk through the book of Jude this morning because it is, it is a prophetic book for our cultural moment. Now, Jude was the younger brother of Jesus, his half-brother, and he was a leader in the church in the early days when the gospel was just beginning to spread across the Roman Empire. Now, Jude wrote this letter uh, to help churches navigate tumultuous times when people were beginning to compromise doctrine, twisting Christianity to pursue their own desires and being led astray by false teachers and false gospels. It was a really tumultuous time. So our topic today is worldview and culture. And we're going to talk about, as Jude describes, contending for the faith. And Jude's going to help us understand what it means to be faithful to the gospel in an age of compromise. So let's open up to our text. Grab your Bible and open up to the book of Jude. It's right near the end of your New Testament. So if you want to, if you're not sure where it is, go to the very back of your New Testament in the book of Revelation and go to the second to last book of the New Testament. And that's the book of Jude. In most of your Bibles, it'd be one page or two pages. Now, let's read our text today. If you need a copy of the Bible, by the way, raise your hand. Love to have you follow along with us. We've got some ushers who can help with that. Let's read our text, and we're going to do like they did in the first century. Uh, not everybody had a copy of the Bible in their hand. We get that privilege. And so they would read an entire letter aloud publicly to the church. And so this is what we're going to do today. We're going to read this letter from Jude. Jude 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals, whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. 
Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand, by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualms, shepherds who feed only themselves. They're clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves on the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts that they've committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in these last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instinct and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. What an incredible letter. So much going on in this letter. And boy, we could do weeks on this uh, book of Jude, especially with those Old Testament allusions and things. Now, here's what we're going to do as we tackle this letter, because what we're going to see is there's a flow in the letter of three different major sections. There's the first, the call to contend for the faith in verses 1 through 4, and this really sets the stage for the whole thing. Then there's a warning about those who twist the gospel in verses 5 to 16 in the middle, and then there's an encouragement to remain faithful. 
There's an encouragement to remain faithful, verses 17 to 25. All right, so those are the three major sections. Let's just jump right in and go for it. So the call to contend, verses 1 through 4. If you look at the greeting here in verse 1, Jude shows his pastor's heart by using three specific words that describe the recipients of the letter, okay? Called, loved, and kept. These three words are critical. Okay, the, the first word, the word called, means that they're chosen and called forth. They're brought from death to life. It's a work of God that they are called. The second, loved, is that they're the ones who have received God's unmerited favor. Another work of God. And then kept means protected, guarded, it's the assurance that you will arrive safely home with Jesus. Another work of God. Did you see a theme with all of these? Called, kept, loved. Who's responsible for those things? Who's doing that work? It's God himself. And these apply to us in the church because in every way, we are the humble recipients of God's grace. We're the objects of God's love and his care. And the ones whom... God will safeguard to enjoy, to be a part of his kingdom. And so maybe I'll start with this encouragement. No matter what happens in the world around us, no matter what happens in your life, the joys and the sorrows, we're secure as God's beloved children, called, loved, and kept. Because God does it. Okay, now Jude launches after the greeting into a challenge here. Look at verse 3. Let me read it again. He says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, evidently he, he wanted to maybe write a letter that was more theological and describing some things about the salvation we share. But he says, Instead, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. There's some situation happening that made him feel uh, that there was an urgency to, to give them a, a sense of the, 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 the contending they needed to do to stick to the truth. Now, this word contend, it's, 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 a, it's a fun word. It's an athletic metaphor. And we've encountered this before in other parts of the Bible. It means to strive. It means to, to struggle against great odds. It means to push to win the prize. It's the sense of stretching towards the finish line. Now, some of you know, and I've talked about it before, that I'm a huge fan of cross-country skiing. I only cross-country ski a little bit myself, but I, can't, I just love watching it. I, like, I love watching the event of cross-country skiing. So every time the Winter Olympics roll around, I kind of like go into hiding and watch hours and hours of cross-country skiing. Now, one of my favorite moments came in 2018, when, and I've shared this before, it's my favorite thing. In 2018 at the Olympics, Afton, there's an Afton resident, Jesse Diggins, from Afton here, who won the first ever gold medal for the US cross country, like the women's cross country team. And she was behind at the last turn, and she made a pass on the outside around this turn in the last 100 meters to win the gold medal by a boot. Okay, look at this, this is the finish. And she's screaming in victory as she's got one foot across the line to win the first ever gold medal for the women at, at, in cross-country skiing for the United States. Wow. 
This is the kind of striving and stretching for the finish line that Jude has in mind. The, like an athlete who's contending for victory. Okay, now what are, the, the, uh, what are we to contend for? This is what Jude says. The faith wants for all entrusted to God's holy people. Listen carefully, friends. We're not to contend for our own truth. We are not to contend for our church's brand. We're not to contend for our own version of whatever moral standards we decide. We aren't to contend for whatever cultural flavor of the day or new theology or interpretation of the Bible. I want you to instead ponder the important truths from the words of this sentence. Just look at each word. It's incredibly important. Jude says we can contend for the faith. It's the historic beliefs and practices of the church across history. We contend for the faith once for all. In other words, the gospel has its finality. It has historic roots. It can't be changed or modified. When we say Christ died and rose again, that is the same theme that has been taught by the church since the first century. Once for all. No new gospels. One historic gospel. And then it's been entrusted. It's a gift to be stewarded by our generation, just like every generation before. Some of you can probably think of the person who first told you about Jesus. The church where you heard the gospel preached for the first time. That text of scripture that someone pointed you to that helped you to understand as the Holy Spirit illuminated what the gospel is in your heart. See, the gospel is something, the, the, the historic faith, the one gospel of Jesus Christ is something that we receive as a gift and we have a responsibility to steward and pass that along to the next generation. I don't know if you know this, but, but I think based on how we've, the last few weeks, down the hall in our little classroom wing, we have over 50 kids hearing the gospel be taught to them week by week. That we have a responsibility, dear friends. That, that I think last week we had like something like 15 kids in the nursery. <laughs> All crying at the same time, I heard. God bless you, nursery workers. Like, I just couldn't do that. It's incredible to see how when we walk through the story of the scriptures, we use the Gospel Project, which is a whole curriculum that goes through the whole Bible in three years. And as the kids walk through that, they see the grand story of what God is doing and has done through Jesus. See, this is so important, friends. The historic Christian faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is something that exists outside of us and it's apart from us. It's a precious gift that God has planned. He did it. It's his work. It's, it's something that, that he has done. It's revealed by God. It's achieved by God. It's applied by God. And it will endure by God's power and his goodness and his promises. And yet it's something that as thoroughly God-centered, it has been entrusted to us, his people, in his church, Jesus' own body, his bride, the message of the good news that we herald that transforms us and can transform this world. See, this is why we care so much about preaching the Bible here. 
We, I, th I think many of you recognize this, and it's something that, that, that we care about so much. Teaching the scriptures here at our church is something that, that, that is so central. It helps us as we, and as we continue to grow as a church, we want to be a church that stands for the truth of God's word. Surrendering our lives and then inviting others to a surrender to God in his authority and his transforming work he wants to do in us through his word. See, a favorite um, quote that I have that I, I, I just laughing about this week, Charles Spurgeon, who I've mentioned previously, he wrote this. He said, the word of God is the anvil upon which the opinions of men are smashed. Don't you love that? If you think you know what's right, test it against what God has revealed. See, I'd recommend a pair of books to you. We've been doing this as we've been going through our series. There's a pastor named Mark Sayers who wrote a pair of books called Disappearing Church from Cultural Relevance to Gospel Resilience. That's the first book. And then the second one is Reappearing Church. The Hope for Renewal in the Rise of Our Post-Christian Culture. They're both on the back table back there, and you can get them in our library. Mark Sayers uses this language of consuming, which we talked about as kind of an infectious thing in the church, and the idea of contending from the book of Jude to help us to understand the shift that the church needs to make to be effective in ministry today. And this is what he says. We need to move from consuming to contending. He says, consuming is the pursuit of comfort and the avoidance of challenge. And it's about the accumulation of external things. Now compare that to contending, which he says is the pursuit of transformation and the embrace of challenges and the formation of internal things. In other words, the transformation of your heart. Consuming well, you'll find a cheap, shallow, not like something that doesn't transform. A faith that is contending in the world that we live in will change you on the inside. See, contending for the faith requires humility, surrender to God's authority. It's a willingness to live in the reality that we follow what God has said, no matter what others say. And this is why Jude now points to a, a different picture. Okay, pick it up in verse 4, all right? He describes what a, what a picture looks like of those who have compromising the faith and are teaching others to do the same. So this is what's happening in the first century church. Verse 4. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people, and this is the accusations here, who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So there's two accusations there. One is twisting God's grace. The other one is denying Jesus's lordship. The same thing happens in the 21st century as it did in the first. See, here's the situation in the first century church. Apparently, um, it was common for itinerant preachers to go from town to town around the Mediterranean. And they would be like traveling salesmen, almost. They were paid for their speaking skills and the creative ideas that they brought. And the more flowery and fantastic the teaching, the more money they made. And frankly, it's not a whole lot different from the monetizing of platforms like YouTube. 
I mean, let's be honest. It becomes tempting when you get into a platform in public in our culture to tell whatever, tell people whatever their itching ears want to hear because it gets you more clicks, more views, and more advertising royalties. That's a tough spot to be in. See, Jude is speaking specifically about false teachers in the first century who created a one-dimensional gospel that only speaks of grace and love and never about God's authority and, his, and obedience to him. I mean, it's not an exaggeration to say that the message of these false teachers in the first century was God is love, and it stopped there. It's of course true, but they never described God's authority to determine what is right and what is wrong. To conform to the image of Christ, to see transformation in your life, it was more like, hey, God loves you. You can do whatever you want. See, he's not writing against maybe non-believers generally. He's specifically talking about people who claim the name of Christ and yet have come up with their own interpretation of morality. You see, um, I mentioned Mark Sayers. In one of his books that I recommended, he says this. He says, people today want the kingdom without the king. Think about that. They want peace and justice. They want unity. We want forgiveness. We want love. We want goodness. We want all these things that are really ultimately characterize the kingdom of God. They're actually features of who God is in his kingdom, and they're his good purposes and design. But people in our culture don't realize that you can't achieve those things without the king who achieves, instills, and he promises those things when we come under his reign, when we live under his rule, when we follow him. And so just like Jude's day, okay, these two accusations of twisting God's grace, you, God is love, you can do whatever you want, or denying his lordship. I don't need King Jesus. It was the same today. They're, they're twisting God's grace into a license for sin or people denying Jesus' lordship. So what happens when, when, when that happens or when we go down that route? Let's look quickly here at verses 5 to 16. Boy, I, I, I wish, okay, this is the warning about those who twist the gospel. I wish we had time to go into all the details here, but we don't. So it, it, there are Old Testament allusions. There's metaphors. There's this rich description of what it means. Most important here for us to understand is what Jude was describing to this church, that, that, that some of the teachers at this time in the first century, this is what they claimed. They said that they had special visionary experiences. They said, God spoke to me. And he said that the things that he described in, in the way that he designed things in the Old Testament, that that stuff doesn't apply anymore. This is what they did. They traveled around and they said, I've had a prophetic dream and, and, and God has changed his standards of what's right and what's wrong. It's not that different from today. This is what people were doing in the first century as well. They claimed that the standards have changed, that, the, that they'd become enlightened to understand that the, the writers of the Bible were we're conditioned or culturally conditioned and, and, and that we can't expect to uphold those strict moral standards. It just sounds exactly like what you hear today. Now, Jude had some strong things to say about that. 
The whole middle section of the letter lists these Old Testament stories. You see them here. He describes Cain. He describes Balaam. He describes Korah. If you want to, please, I'd love to explain those maybe later, but look up those stories in the Old Testament and see what happened in these instances where people turned away from God. See, he uses these to call out these false teachers. And I just want to highlight a couple things that he says. Pick it up in verses 8 to 16. I just want to skim a few lines. Listen to some of the things that, that Jude describes at this moment that are eerily prophetic to our culture today. Verse 8. He says, in the very same way on the strength of these, their dreams, which is their, their claims to new truth, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies. They reject authority. They heap abuse on celestial beings. Skip down to verse 10. He says, yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. Verse 12, these people are like shepherds who feed only themselves. They're clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead. And then verse 16, maybe the capstone of it. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. If that doesn't sound like the internet. <laughs> Social media, grumbling, fault-finding, flattering others for your own advantage. Friends, here's the point. What Jude wants us to see in this middle section is that things don't look good when you twist the gospel. If it's for your own personal gain or to satisfy your own personal desires, it's a scary and humbling thing to encounter that. And so what are we to do? Because Jude's point is to not necessarily just continue to go only kind of in a negative way. He is a pastor who wants to speak to the heart of the people that are reading this. He wants to give some specific encouragement for believers who find themselves in an age of compromise. Let's look at this last section. This is an encouragement to remain faithful. Verses 17 to 25. See, in these sections, Jude puts the things in the proper perspective. Pick it up in verse 17. He says, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In these last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, and do not have the Spirit. Hey, friends, I want you to see a key word here. In these last times is an eschatological statement. Eschatology is the study of the end. It's all about the, it's about the end of all things. When he says, in these last times, he's speaking about widening our perspective from the, the, mo the things we encounter in our generation which are part of a, a wider movement of, of things across the generations where people have stuck to the historic truths of the gospel and they encounter new things in their own moment. He helps to place us in our day into the grand plan of God to superintend all of history. It's moving towards his redemptive ends. He says this. He basically says, hey, the apostles told you that this was going to happen. Did you see that in verse 17? He says there's going to be people who scoff at biblical truth. Don't be surprised. They're going to try and divide you. But listen, they don't have the Holy Spirit. He said these are signs of the end. 
But don't forget that Jesus has a plan. And so here's what we're told to do. There's four practices in verses 20 to 21 about contending for the faith. So if you want to say, what does it mean to contend for the faith? In verses 20 to 21, Jude explains it in detail. It's building, praying, keeping, and waiting. Okay, the first one, building. This is when we move towards constructing a durable, vibrant faith by pursuing God wholeheartedly. Can your faith withstand a building is, it's, it's a, a built on the foundation of Christ. And as you construct that faith over time, it becomes solid and secure. He says, build by building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Second is praying in the Holy Spirit. This is seeking the Lord guided by his Holy Spirit in dependence on him in prayer. Then we see, keep yourselves in God's love in verse 21. So keeping is remaining, guarding. It's being steadfast in God's loving kindness. Standing firm in the reality of God's favor to us in Christ. And then the last is waiting. This is a hopeful and active preparation for Jesus' return. So it's not a passive waiting Jesus, please come. <laughs> we, we cry out with these words, come Lord Jesus. But as we do that, we're pursuing a faithful walk with him, getting ready for when he would return. See, Jude, as he casts these four different things, building, praying, keeping, waiting, he wants us to see a positive picture of what it means to hold fast to the gospel. He's not one to just point. He's saying, look at us, the church. What are we doing in a positive way to contend for the faith, to put the truth of the gospel on display? He wants us to match a solid understanding of doctrine with a vivid and transformed and obedient life. <clears throat> We're to defend the faith by words and deeds that demonstrate the beauty and truthfulness and glory of the gospel. And as we do this, don't miss the last two verses here, verses 22 and 23 of this call to persevere. He says that we're to do it he says, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear. Do you see his pastoral heart here? What he desires of us? He says, we're the ones who've received mercy. And now we get to show mercy to those who are struggling to align their faith and their actions, their beliefs, and what they actually do day to day. We're ones who've been shown mercy. And so when we see someone who's walked away from God, we can show mercy. And he says, snatch them from the fire. In other words, do everything with an urgency, like a firefighter who runs into a burning building and tosses someone on your shoulders and runs out. Helping people to the safety and life-giving good news of the full forgiveness and lordship of Jesus. That's what we're called to. You see, um, later this morning, and, and if uh, stick around, um, we're going to have our, our annual meeting here in a little bit. And what we're going to be talking about is, is taking a step of faith towards the vision that God's called us to. 
And I want to make sure that we're crystal clear about some of the priorities about who we are as a church and where we're going. Because as we desire to make disciples in an increasingly post-Christian world, we want to do what Judas has challenged us with, to contend for the faith. And so we're all feeling, I'm sure you feel this, and I know through my conversations with you, that we're all feeling the challenges and the pressures of following Jesus today. It's a tough time. And now more than ever, we need to strive with grace and truth to be centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me challenge you with a specific phrase. We need to live with convictional kindness. Let me say that again. Convictional kindness. An uncompromising trust in God and what he has revealed is what is true. And a willing heart to grow in compassion for others and passionate evangelism to the world around us. Convictional kindness. Who needs to see that in your life? Who are the people around you who need you, as we talk about being a witness for Jesus, who need to see you have convictional kindness? Friends, you know, this is rooted in God's own character. I was just thinking, just before I came up here, the Lord put on my heart to share and remind you of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He did this out of his love for you. That he died in your place, in my place. And this is the motivation. When you talk about contending for the faith in a culture that's set against God, we follow God's own very heart. When we have convictional kindness, when it comes out of a heart of love, of mercy, as Jude says. Ones who have received God's mercy. See, here's some priorities that we're going to focus on some things that God's put on my heart specifically that capture what I would hope and pray is God's desire, his agenda for us as a church in this new season of ministry. What we want to see is firstly, biblical truth taught and studied and applied. That we would be people who sit under the authority of God's word, that we would have more people hearing God's word and believing the gospel that we would see people encounter the truth for the first time. Biblical truth taught, studied, and applied. That's what we're about. The second is we want to have a community of faith where we deepen our relationships within our church and then also invite others to know a vibrant family of God. To see that beautiful picture of the body serving one another and showing what it means to to put, be Jesus' hands and feet. And then the next is, is that we would have evangelism and outreach where we learn to share the gospel. If you don't know how to do that, we want to, we're going to have a gospel seminar, like a gospel sharing seminar later this fall. Love to have you be a part of that. We want to learn how to share the gospel. We want to learn how to strengthen the ministry partnerships that we have as a church and then engage in missions locally and globally. We've taken some steps in that direction this last year. And we want that to be a heartbeat of our church. We also want to train people 
to be faithful in the post-Christian world through things like our creative disciple by doing strategy, our cutting through the confusion of our world and shining a light into the darkness to have us be formed spiritually in heart and mind, to have intentional discipleship training so that we're equipped to be in this world that we live in. And then the last thing is that we would have generosity and invest in God's kingdom. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's a sense of worship of sowing seeds for greater fruitfulness and establishing a legacy for generations to come. So this is my prayer, that we'd be ones who contend for the faith in an age where the idol of self has so gripped the hearts of people that people around us need to see a different way. A way of faithfulness, a way of a, a vivid and life-giving obedience to God displaying the great beauty, the wonder, the goodness of God's grace to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray now that this list, as we were just describing and talking about, that we live these things, we want to live into them in this coming season, we want to see the gospel put on display in us, through us, that the transformation you've done in our lives would be a light to the, to the world around us, Lord, that we would be ones who contend for the faith with a soft-heartedness, Lord, with convictional kindness, looking around us and seeing a broken world that needs to hear about Christ. Lord, show us how to do that. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you. You have been so faithful to us, and we want to sing about your faithfulness now. In Jesus' name, amen.